the fundamental areas that you need to talk about when you're thinking about going into business with somebody, whether it's starting a new company or maybe you're joining somebody's company and as an owner or that you're bringing somebody into your existing company as an owner, are in a few buckets, right? One bucket is decision-making, control, voting, right? Who makes the decisions on what kind of things? The next bucket is how basically economics, how's the money divided, right? And each of these buckets have complex subcategories, but let's lay them out at a high level, right? So voting control, decision-making, one. Two, money, economics, how does it split, how does it flow? Three are what I call the what-ifs. And in the what-ifs, there are several areas. What if somebody dies? What if somebody becomes permanently disabled? What if somebody wants to retire or leave the business? Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Hello, DealQuest listeners. This is a solo cast where we're going to dive deep, do a deep dive on business partnership deals. So, so many businesses are not run by one owner, uh, run in some sort of business partnership, whether that's structured as a LLC uh, or a corporation, S-corp, whatever, you know, uh, I'm using the colloquial term business partnership. For the most part, you're almost pretty much never going to want to be a general partnership legally. Uh, you know, you're going to be either co-owners as shareholders in a corporation or uh, co-members in an LLC, which is just basically the different terms that you use for, you know, for ownership and those types of entities. So let's talk about a number of the things that come up in business partnership deals in terms of the business issues and, and some of the legal structuring issues that you want to be thinking about. So the fundamental areas that you need to talk about when you're thinking about going into business with somebody, whether it's starting a new company or maybe uh, you're joining somebody's company and as an owner or that you're bringing somebody into your existing company as an owner, are in a few buckets, right? One bucket is uh, decision-making, control, voting, right? Who makes the decisions on what kind of things? The next bucket is how basically economics, how's the money divided, right? And each of these buckets have complex subcategories, but let's lay them out at a high level, right? So voting control, decision-making, one. Two, money, economics, how, how does it split, how does it flow? Three are what I call the what-ifs. And in the what-ifs, there are several areas. What if somebody dies? What if somebody becomes permanently disabled? What if somebody wants to retire or leave the business and not compete? Or what happens if they are competing? And then there's all kinds of subcategories and these buyouts in terms of you know, how we value equity, how we um, fund the buyout and all that kind of stuff. So we'll hit as many of those as we can here. And obviously, 
This is a complex topic. And although I am a lawyer, I am not your lawyer. This is not legal advice like anything else I say in these podcasts, but it gives you some parameters on, on the kind of things that, when you're, that you should be thinking about and then speaking to your attorney when you're going into a business partnership. So let's talk about the decision-making control voting compensation. And there are different levels of decisions that happen in a entity that's owned by more than one person. And you know, I may use the term shareholder or owner or partner or uh, member interchangeably here. Obviously, there are legal distinctions depending upon the type of entity it is. But from a concept point of view, in terms of these concepts of voting control and decision you know, making and also economics, whatever, it doesn't really matter what these things are, asterisks or a couple of tax differences. But you know, for most of these conversations, uh, I'll use them interchangeably, even though legally they're, uh, they apply to different types of entities. So you're going into business with somebody and you have sort of the, the day-to-day decisions and then you've got bigger decisions. So on a day-to-day decisions, it's very common for those not to be sort of documented and set forth in any kind of shareholders agreement or operating agreement for an LLC or LLC company agreement. There's different names for these things, uh, but those are basically agreements between the owners. And you know, the day-to-day decisions could be made by employees, by officers, which could be the owners or not the owners or other people. But the question is on bigger decisions. Are you going to have whoever has majority control? Let's say I'm in a business partnership with you and you know I'm a two-thirds owner, you're a one-third owner. Do I, as the two-thirds owner, get to make all the decisions? Which by default, if we don't do anything different, I will be able to, with a couple of exceptions of some things that might be governed by state law, like merger, where I might need approval if you have above a certain percentage, 25% or whatever. But for the most part, you know, if I want to hire people, I want to fire people, I want to sign a lease, I want to take out a loan, I want to, let's say, even bring in other owners, things like that. Can the majority owner just make that decision? Or are there certain things that we call supermajority requirements or extraordinary transaction requirements where it may be that you're going to say, hey, we need the minority owner or owners uh, to be able to vote on it. So what is the voting percentage that's required for various types of decision making? And very often, you know, it's, it's, it is about 50%, uh, you know, just majority for things that are enlisted. But then there's a list, like, for example, when we do uh, shareholders agreements or operating agreements for LLCs for, for clients, we have sort of a, a list of extraordinary transactions uh, that people can choose from if they want to say, no, you know what, if we want to bring in another owner, I think uh, even the minority owners, depending upon obviously how, how big of a percentage they have and how important they are to the business, maybe they should have some say. If we want to take on a big debt obligation or contract or spend above a certain amount of money or merge or sell the company, maybe they should have a say, or maybe not. So that's a fundamental you know, choice on how you're going to run the decision-making and voting and, and, uh, of your company. Uh, is it majority rules or is it supermajority requirement above 51%? Uh, you know, or do you need unanimity for, unanimity for anything? Those are key, very key decisions and you know, certainly something we help our clients with, but you know, it's different for everybody depending upon the relative uh, nature of the owners involved. You know, if you have somebody who you're giving maybe a couple of percent of equity, they're probably not going to have any voting control decisions. They might be able to vote. That's another question. I mean, is the, is the equity voting or non-voting? We can get to that. But even if they can vote, they might be able to vote, but they're going to be outvoted because they, they don't have, because they have a minority interest. But on the other hand, if you have a key executive or somebody who's been working for you a long time, or certainly an investor who might be investing in a minority of the ownership percentage, but is putting in significant capital, they're going to want certain veto rights, certain supermajority, extraordinary transaction rights as part of that. 
Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to join our DealQuest community group on Facebook. There, you'll have a chance to engage with other entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, and leaders who are looking to grow, do deals, and make a bigger impact. In addition to the great content and community, you can also register there for our conversations, community, and cocktail Zoom calls and the upcoming Deal Den Zoom calls during which you will have the opportunity to brainstorm and get support with deal-driven growth for your company. Now back to the show. The other thing an investor may want, and it brings us into this next conversation of classes of equity. You know, does everybody have the same rights and preferences as to the equity, meaning the same class of equity? Uh, in a corporation, that would be the same class of stock. In an LLC, that would be the same class of membership interest. You know, or is there like a founder's class with an A share, let's say, you know, and then a B uh, equity for other people. And maybe even in an LLC, what we call a P share off or a P membership class, which is a profits interest, which only participates in not current cash flow and has almost never has voting, but participates in a certain percentage of a sale of an exit transaction. So we don't have time. And I could do a whole separate uh, solo cast on equity, capital structure and equity structure. But that's one of the decisions to, uh, to make is whether everybody has the same class of equity or different class of equity and whether they, those classes of equity are voting or non-voting. And if, if they are voting, what maybe there's weighted voting even. Sometimes we do founders have weighted voting. So they, even if they lose uh, or have less than 50% of the economic control, they still control the voting. Um, that's a possibility to do as well. And then are there any other differences between those classes of equity like preferences? So often an investor will get, let's say, a preferred return of their capital, and maybe even a coupon, meaning a preferred return plus a, uh, I mean, a preferred return of capital plus a preferred rate of return on that capital before other people get money out, or maybe um, as maybe not a hundred percent before money get people get money out, but maybe they get a you know eighty percent of the cash flow until they get their money back, or things like that. So that's the pool of decision making, and a little bit about capital and equity structuring. Then we have how the money's split. Just because somebody owns, uh, let's say three people own a business one third apiece, doesn't mean that they have to get one third apiece uh, in terms of the, uh, the split. People can get compensated you know, for their services separate apart from their, what they get as an owner, right? So you know, what they usually get a, as an owner is a distribution or at least a, um, an allocation for tax purposes of any of the net, let's call it net profit taxable income. Uh, after money's paid out, but you can potentially pay out some of that in compensation that reduces the amount available for ownership level distribution. Now it's different and there's complex things where you get into, like in, an, in a corporation, you can have owners on salary, uh, you know, on payroll. In an LLC, you can't, you do something called a guaranteed payment. But the point is, even in an LLC, if in my example, where three people own it one third apiece, that doesn't mean that uh, if somebody's, let's say, working in the business or at a higher level than the other people, et cetera, that they're guaranteed payment, think about it as their salary, as their compensation, even though it's different and can't be on payroll, um, you know, can be twice as much as, as what the other people are getting paid. And then the one-third, one-third, one-third distribution comes down only be after that on what comes down to an ownership level. So how's the money going to be split? How is it going to flow out? Does anybody have any preferences? How, are they, you know, how is the compensation element going to be tied in or not to, you know, related to what the ownership element is? Or is everything just going to go by ownership, which works for some people? So you got to figure that out too in the business partnership. And then this next category about all the what ifs. This is where, you know, to some extent there are, you know, some common ways of handling these things. But the truth is that there are a lot of decisions to make. And if you work with anybody that just gives you an off the shelf or, or, or God forbid, you pull something off the internet, 
I get it. If you have no budget and can't afford a lawyer, maybe it's better than nothing. But any kind of real business, uh, there's too many nuances in terms of the different decisions you want to make in terms of death, disability, retirement, uh, competing, not competing, all that kind of stuff. But let me talk about some of the ways that things are commonly done. The first decision you want to make is, do you want, you see, if you don't have anything in an agreement, what's going to happen if somebody dies is that uh, their equity is going to pass through their estate, through their will, or through the intestate laws, if they don't have a will, whoever their beneficiaries are, um, or who, you know, whoever's named in the will, if they have one. Uh, that could be a spouse, could be children, could be other relatives. And in most businesses, I mean, listen, if you're a huge company and it's become less important on who owns it, and maybe you have public ownership or outside, you know, you may not care. Um, certainly uh, in some high growth tech companies, there's a desire sometimes to have that capital be able to pass. But in most companies, most small, medium sized, and even, you know, growing privately held companies, the last thing that people want is to have someone other than the key person working in the business owning a piece of it. And certainly not a relative who may know nothing, uh, you know, or in most cases, not all cases, but most cases knows nothing about the business. So um, what is most often set up is that there's a buy-sell. Sometimes you'll hear this referred to as a buy-sell agreement. Certainly when you speak to insurance folks, they'll often call it that. For most of us, certainly, you know, when we draft the legal agreements, we build the buy-sell provisions right into the shareholders agreement or operating agreement for the LLC, as opposed to having a separate buy-sell. It's a key component part of the uh, operating agreement or shareholders agreement. Now, what is common, again, take it with a grain of salt, there are different things, but if you're going to have a buyout provision, then often the company has at least an option. And when I say the company, it could be the company uh, or the other members or shareholders, and there are some tax implications on which way you do it. And usually you put in one, if, if the company doesn't want it, then the individuals can buy it. Um, but they're going to have a right, at least an option. And most often, I'd say most often, have an obligation to buy out those, those, um, that equity, right? Shares, membership, interest, whatever it is upon the death. Because having it be a firm obligation on both sides does two things. One, it assures the company that they can get that equity back and it doesn't go to somebody outside the company who may not know anything about it. And on the other hand, it, it, it assures the deceased. And keep in mind, uh, this is a key thing. Usually, usually when you're drafting these, you don't know who it's going to affect, right? You don't know who's going to die first. Now, you may have a situation where you have a significantly older partner and it's more likely one way or another, but you still don't know. You know, somebody can get hit by the proverbial bus tomorrow. And so what you most often want to do is also provide a way for the estate, for the family to monetize the value that, of that equity at the time of death because they probably, they may need the money. And because uh, it's in the interest of the company to get that equity back, not have other people in there. And also to not have the family hold it because especially with working partners, the equity value is going to keep increasing after that person leaves, assuming the company continues to do well. So if they've passed away, what you're allowing passive owners to do is get the increased value of that if they continue to hold the equity. And usually the company wants that to be cut off. And if you're doing it well, then you have a fair value done uh, at the time the, uh, of the death. And the, you know, the estate, the family, whoever the beneficiaries are, get fair value for the equity at that time. And the company gets the equity back. And very often, you will choose to fund that death buyout with life insurance. We most often recommend term life insurance. Some of the insurance people disagree with us and look at other products that have cash value and things like that. I sort of believe if you're going to invest and do something with cash value, whether it's insurance or more of an outside insurance, you can do that separately. Why not just have something for this purpose and use term? But 
just my opinion in most cases, that insurance will provide the funding to buy out the equity. And that's why most, again, most often times you'll set that up as a cross purchase where the other owners are the ones who are buying out the equity. They're the ones who are the beneficiaries on the, on the life insurance policy. And then they pay out, they're obligated under the shareholders agreement or operating agreement, the LLC, to pay that, those insurance funds over to the estate in exchange for the equity that the estate owns post-death. Um, so there's a funding vehicle, doesn't hurt the cash flow of the company. Now, sometimes this won't be available if somebody's uninsurable or maybe uh, you know, has major health issues and would be insurable, but at a ridiculously high rate, then you might not have insurance. But I would say 98% of the time, my clients uh, will fund the death buyout with insurance. But there are ways to handle it if there's no insurance. And that segues us into permanent disability because it's a similar situation as to death. If somebody's permanently disabled, they can no longer work in the company if they're a working partner, right? Less important if they're an investor. But if they're a working partner, certainly for the same reasons you want to buy, buy back their equity and, their, you know, and, and give their family uh, the value of the equity at the time because they're no longer contributing, et cetera. And, in, and although there is uh, buyout insurance for a disability buyout, which is different than disability income insurance, uh, which provides just replacement income for the person, disability buyout is like a lump sum to, to pay the buyout price. That insurance is way, 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 way more expensive than life insurance. So whereas 98% of my clients fund the death buyout, probably a couple of percent of my clients fund the disability buyout. Um, but what we do in the case of, the dis- of not having insurance, whether it's more likely in the disability scenario or even in the, small, you know, the, in the less likely case where we cannot or choose not to fund the death buyout, is you, you, know, you make it a payment over time, three years, five years, seven years, uh, three to five is most common, uh, where you buy out that equity over time from uh, the estate. Um, so it's not a big cash flow hit on the company. They can pay out a, you know, uh, over a period of time and the equity is bought out right away with a payment of, uh, over, over a period of years. Um, so that's upon death and disability. And then you're going to look at, are you going to have a retirement concept? And is that retirement concept going to be triggered by age or by length of service? Or does it not matter of any of those? Can somebody retire, quote unquote, at any point, as long as they're not competing? You know, if they leave, it's, you don't care, they're fine. Or do you want to make sure people are there for a period of time? So they have to be there five years or 10 years or, you know, there's an age requirement or whatever. But whatever your criteria is for retirement, you also, you know, for similar reasons as we talked about, if the person's no longer involved, want to likely want this right or obligation. Again, the retiring purpose person may want to know that they can be bought out. So maybe uh, more often it's an obligation to do the buyout. Now that's not fundable by insurance. You pay that over time. And then, you know, there's this fundamental, this comes up uh, in every business, certainly comes up with our investment advisor clients, where what's the model? You know, if some, if, let's say if somebody's going to leave, but they're not retiring. So, you know, retiring assumes they're not competing, right? And in any kind of buyout deal, there's going to be a restrictive covenant on non-solicits, you know, and non-competes, you know, uh, to protect the company from not paying somebody and then having them go take the business away. But part of that comes down to your model when we're talking about a situation where it's not retirement, somebody just leaves and they are going to stay in the business. Well, is your model that all the clients are institutionalized, meaning they're company owned, so that there are non-solicits, non-competes built in? Uh, and you got to look at enforceability of that. And that we could do a whole separate section on that, which I won't go into detail. So are you going to have that? Uh, and then you're going to uh, buy them out. They're going to be restricted from competing. Or maybe, especially if you're in a high relationship business where you're unlikely to keep those clients anyway, which happens sometimes, for example, in the investment advisory space, you or you know, in other service businesses, uh, maybe you set up a system where you're going to value 
the clients that leave and go with this person and then offset that value against the value of their equity. And by the way, so uh, actually, let me hold off on the valuation in a second. So you, you may offset that and allow them to take it or, you know, or have that be the liquidated damages provision if they violate the non-solicit, meaning that that's what they have to pay, even though they're technically not supposed to do it. So th- those are some fundamental decisions you want to make on what happens if somebody leaves. Then there's the whole question about, you know, well, what happens if we're just not getting along and we want to break this thing up? Well, can we force somebody out? You know, if not, can we, do we have to leave it to the courts? That's not usually a good solution. Is there a way to divide up the business if we're not getting along? Is there a way to split clients if we're not getting along? You know, if I sort of have a book of business and you do, maybe it's easy. Some businesses, it's not. You know, do we have to dissolve the entity and start up new entities uh, for each of us? Or does somebody get to, to buy it out? There are buyout provisions that uh, have names of, they've been previously called Russian roulette and, um, and Chinese auction. I frankly, I'm not clear on whether any of those are, you know, I mean, Russian roulette is like the thing with the, with the gun. That's not, not too exciting. And I don't know if, if, if the term Chinese auction is derogatory or just descriptive. So I don't want to, uh, I should look into that uh, honestly and know whether those terms are you know, pejorative or not. But uh, the point is that there are systems where it's like, hey, everybody puts in a, either a, a private bid in an envelope and whoever bids higher or you bid back and forth and go higher, uh, you know, um, where you can uh, decide at the time on who's going to buy it out, or you can pre-program that into your agreement, or you can say it's got to dissolve and, and everybody just is free to compete and fight for themselves. Or, you know, you can have it where there's some economic uh, adjustment if somebody ends up with more of the business. There's a lot of ways to do that, but you got to deal with it, what happens if things don't work out and separate. On the, uh, any of these eventualities, certainly death, disability, um, retirement, uh, and if somebody leaves, the other qu- question that comes up is how you value this, uh, right? How you value the equity. And you can do it by a formula in the agreement, which is easier and does not, avoids the cost and the headache of getting an outside valuation and makes it very straightforward. So like, you know, it's a multiple of EBITDA or EBOC or revenue, which is not often a great way to uh, value. But the problem with any of these formulas is that the market changes, right? Market conditions change, multiples change. And what you put in as a formula now might be very different, higher or lower than the market when the time comes. So while it's simpler, it's easier, it's more straightforward, it's less costly when the time comes, we often like to have an outside valuation done at the time because that would take into account uh, market conditions. And that can be done by the company's accountant, which obviously would tend to maybe favor in the range of acceptable market value the, the partners who are staying because the, you know, the, uh, the accountant wants to keep the account. Or you can have everybody agree on an independent firm, or if they can't agree, you can have them each pick a firm. And then if they don't agree, you pick a third firm. There's a lot of ways to do this, but you got to figure out a valuation methodology. And then the concept is, okay, are you looking for fair market value in all cases? Or are there some situations, which often there are, where you can have a discount off fair market value or some other valuation methodology? So for example, you might say you cannot, and by the way, this is a mistake a lot of people make, and even lawyers make. They have an absolute restriction on transfer of equity forever. That is not enforceable, right? I argue with lawyers about this all the time. I think I've talked about this in some of the other pod- early podcasts that I did when we were back in the fueling deals days. But you can't have an absolute restriction on transfer forever. It's a violation of actually the, the, the Commerce Clause uh, uh, of the Constitution, believe it or not. Uh, but you can say, hey, for the first three years, five years, somebody can't transfer. And if they do, they get, you know, you can buy it back for a dollar. You can buy it back for, for book value. You can buy it back. Or maybe that's just a disincentive. You know, if they transfer within uh, the first uh, or leave within the first, you know, five years, it's 50% of value. Or if they leave without 
at any time without, you know, good reason, there's a discount to, to uh, the market value. Certainly in the cases of bankruptcy or divorce, where a judge is awarding some of this, uh, the equity, because uh, it's an asset of the person to someone else, you can have, you can put in different buyout uh, methodologies that make it cheaper to get it back. In bankruptcy, by the way, they may very well not be enforced. The bankruptcy uh, courts have a lot of leeway and there are implications of doing it in a divorce situation as well in terms of potentially, uh, although it's more likely a judge would honor it, then they might reallocate other assets to the, to the spouse. So that's all discussion as well. But very often in those cases, you're looking to get it back less expensively because you don't, you know, it's going to go to a creditor or an ex-spouse otherwise. Uh, and, you know, you don't want to, and, and it's unfair for the company to be forced to pay market value in, in, in a situation where it's caused by the, uh, you know, which is one of the owners. So again, as you can see, there's a lot of factors here and it's why it's important to work with, you know, skilled professionals who help you think these through because none of this is, you know, is cookie cutter. There are, there are ways like I've talked about in some of these situations that it's most often dealt with, but that may or may not fit your model and there are nuances within each of those. So this is a deep dive into sort of the legal structures. Now, obviously, none of this matters unless you pick the right partner, uh, unless you can really get along and talk things out, you know, unless there's a shared vision and all of that kind of stuff. But too often, people look at the, when, you know, what, what often are referred to as soft skills, which, which frankly, I think are actually more important than all this legal stuff. But the mistake they made is that they just trust that and they don't do their homework. They don't do their legal work. I mean, I've had situations where people have not had these agreements in place and then the partnership breaks up or, or one or two, you know, the partners want to leave and then it's a mess. So you want to get an operating agreement, shells agreement in place. You want to do it in a way where you think through uh, these issues in detail with the right uh, advice, with the right counsel, uh, and it will serve you significantly going forward to create a roadmap for what happens in all these situations and also to get clear. And, and listen, what I often, I, I say this generally with, in terms of legal agreements, you know, there's two major advantages of a legal agreement. Uh, one is to have that roadmap and if anything goes wrong, to be able to point to it and ultimately to be able to enforce it in a court of law. But the other thing is going through that process of creating that legal agreement. It helps make sure there's a meeting of the minds, as us lawyers say, you know, making sure that you and your business partner are on the same page as to these important decisions, like how money flows, like how decisions are made and all that kind of stuff. So with that, we're going to complete our deep, deep dive on business partnership agreements. Look out for deep dives on some other deal topics in future solo guests. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app, podchaser.com, or any major podcast player. Every review helps the show reach more listeners. If you're ready to take your deal making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator, head over to Amazon or Audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book, Authentic Negotiating. Then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.